Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> ah, hello there. So delighted to see you return to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and today we've got an interesting item. If you'll come over here to the art gallery section of the shop, you'll notice a collection we've just recently procured. It is a collection from an up-and-coming artist, but we see great potential in him here at Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. For the owner of the shop, finds his work delves deep into the unknown and the supernatural. And if you'll notice, the subject matter deals with a particular color. Of course, Picasso had his blue period, and this artist seems to be going through a red period. And therein lies the lifeblood of today's episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the kinetoscope and take a look at the new film... Insidious, the Red Door. So, Insidious is a film series started back in 2011 with the first film, of course, directed by James Wan, a screenplay written by Lee Wannell. Yet, Insidious Chapter 2 in 2013, again, Wan and Wannell directing and writing. Uh, Insidious Chapter 3 is kind of where we get a switch in things. Insidious Chapter 1 and 2 follow the Lambert family, but uh, Insidious Chapter 3 and 4 kind of deviated from this family and started following a fan favorite who, spoiler alert, was deceased after the events of the first one. But chapter three and chapter four started following the Elise Rainier character played by the incomparable Lynn Shay and were essentially... Uh, prequels to the first two Insidious films. Uh, Insidious 3 takes place like a few years before the events of Insidious 1. Insidious 4 takes place uh, a few months before the events of Insidious 1. And of course, Chapter 3, written and directed by Lee Wannell. Insidious 4, written by Wannell, but uh, directed by Adam Robitel. And it's one of those movie film franchises where each successive installment is kind of worse than the one before. But there really aren't any bad installments, at least for my money. Uh, of course, the first Insidious, uh, fantastic. Uh, some of the some of the best jump scares in film history, and the imagery, and just the things James Wan was doing, just it, are, are the things that made James Wan uh, one of the modern masters of horror. And Insidious One will always be the best of the best when it comes to the Insidious film franchise. Insidious 2 was not quite as scary, but it was still a good story and still a good movie. And I really enjoyed Insidious 2. Insidious Chapter 3, it's a shame because they took a fan favorite character, the Lin Shay character, uh, Elise, and started focusing on her. And while I did enjoy that, I didn't care as much about the people in peril. I was more interested in the Elise character, but we got away from the Lambert family and uh, I just didn't care as much. And I have to say, Lin Shay's character, Elise Rainier, is the only reason that Insidious 3 and Insidious 4 are okay movies. And the fact that 
you had Lee Wanell writing all four of these screenplays and really being able to being invested and in being able to uh, link all of these stories together. While three and four kind of deviated from what I really liked about one and two, it still had all that connective tissue. And I, I like three because you did kind of see the the forming of the team between the Elise character and Tucker and Specs. And that was kind of cool. And then at the end of four, Elise gets the call from the Barbara Hershey character, Lorraine, uh, about her grandson, which ties into the first Insidious movie. So you had, like I said, uh, a lot of that connective tissue. You had a wonderful character in the Elise character, which I, I really was disappointed that they killed her off after the events of the first Insidious movie because I thought... She could have been an anchor character uh, along with the Lambert family moving forward because that's really what you wanted to see. And while I enjoyed the prequel stuff for what it was, I did not enjoy them as much as the first two movies. So I was really excited when I found out they were doing a new Insidious movie, Insidious the Red Door, but they were going back to the Lambert family. And that's really what I wanted. And I figured they'd find some way, and you even see it in the trailer, uh, they find ways to tie Lynn Shea's character, Elise, into the story, albeit briefly. Once we get into the more spoilery section of our, our little discussion here, uh, I'll talk about another way they implemented her into the, maybe not the story, but into the movie that uh, it, I don't know how I feel about it. It borderlined on a little bit cheesy and hokey, but it was still, you know, it's kind of one of those that kind of gives you chills because you're seeing this beloved character uh, returning. But we'll, we'll talk about that. Did they do it in the right way? I, I don't know. Again, talk about that in the spoilery section. But I was really excited that they're going back to the Lambert family. And when you watch the trailer, you, you see, you know, this, it's called the Red Door. So... I thought, okay, we're going to delve into the mythos and the lore behind this red door that's been a central prop piece in this whole franchise, especially the first two Insidious movies. When you're talking about the Lambert family, uh, we're going back to the uh, red-faced demon. I thought, okay, we're going to find out a little more about this because in the first Insidious movie, it was the big bad guy, but it really... For my money, one of the few failings of that movie is the fact that they never really give you any explanation of the motives of the red-faced demon other than he wants Dalton. But you don't know anything about this villain. And it was almost like, okay, here's this big bad guy, but we really want to set up the bride in black for essentially Insidious 2 when they do the flashbacks to the Josh Lambert character. So you never really got a good explanation or, or even motivation for the red-faced demon in Insidious 1. And like I said, that's probably one of my only complaints about that movie. So I thought, okay, we're, we're going to delve into this. We're going to delve into the red door. We're going to delve into the return of the red-faced demon and maybe get a little more of an idea of what's going on here with this story. And I was really excited about that. But then 
Well, well, we'll again get into that in the more spoilery section. But this movie is directed first time director Patrick Wilson. Not only is he starring in it, but he is uh, directing this, and he even has a song at the end of the movie, which uh, I'll, I'll talk a little more about that later. But uh, I, it's it's quite good. I I've really been enjoying this song, Ghost, along with Patrick Wilson on the end credit song. We'll we'll talk a little more about that later. But the Screenplay is by Scott Teams, and I have a real issue with some of Scott Teams' more recent work. He's responsible for Halloween, Evil Dies Tonight. I mean, Halloween Kills. He wrote that abysmal abomination of a Stephen King adaptation with Firestarter. He's teaming up with David Gordon Green for The Exorcist Believer, which is in post-production right now. He didn't. I don't think he wrote the screenplay, but he did come up with a story. I'm not sure exactly how he's involved as far as any writing goes. But if it's anything like Halloween Evil Dies Tonight, I, I'm sorry. I mean, a Halloween Kills. Ah, uh, I'm just. I, I. I'm quickly becoming not a big fan of Scott Team's work. So that made me a little nervous about Insidious: The Red Door. First time director with Patrick Wilson. I, I wasn't sure how he was going to do. You know, handling the uh, acting duties and the directing duties. But you know, you've had a lot of great actors turn directors over the years. So that you know, that was kind of a 50-50. It was a toss-up. Scott Team's his track record with movies that I've liked has been. Uh, whew, he's batting zero at that. And so I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about that. But ultimately, I think this movie is okay. Before we get into the spoilery section, if you, you haven't watched it yet, I won't spoil anything for you right now, but I, I think it's an okay movie. Uh, it's not great. It is not well written. The whole third act seems rushed. Like we spent so much time recapping the events of the first two films. Uh, trying to remind people, you know, what happened. And I'm like, you know, if you're watching Insidious 5 and you haven't watched any of the other ones, you're an idiot. Uh, to, uh, you know, anyone who has watched those already knows essentially what happened in the other ones. You don't have to keep rehashing it. I actually went back and rewatched at least the first two Insidious movies. I rewatched those because I know this was more of a direct sequel to those. So I didn't feel like I needed to go back and rewatch uh, three and four, but I rewatched the first two and reminded myself how much I really love those first two movies. So I, I didn't need all of the rehashing of the events of the first two film, and they wasted a lot of time doing just that with this movie. And I want to say that there's probably a director's cut. Patrick Wilson probably has a cut of this movie that's about 20 minutes longer, probably pushing about two hours. The movie's right around an hour, 40 minutes, hour 45. And I'm guessing there's probably like a two hour cut, right around two hours, that probably has uh, a, a better third act, a more complete third act. You have characters showing up in places where like I thought, oh, I thought they were over here before. And now they're here. Uh, it just, it, it, the editing and the storytelling in, the, in that third act just felt like it got rushed. On top of the fact that it had some real missed opportunities to focus on 
the title of the movie, The Red Door and The Red-Faced Demon. Some real missed opportunities, and we'll go into that in the spoilery section as to, to what I think they missed out on. But it's still a decent movie. I think the thing that really works for this movie is the cast. Patrick Wilson does a great job. Uh, Rose Byrne reprises her role as Renee. Doesn't get a lot of screen time, but uh, but you enjoy the time she is there with Patrick Wilson. Ty Simpkins, I, I thought, did a wonderful job. He's a young actor that you, you catch from time to time in different things, but I, I think he, he had the weight of this movie on his shoulder, and I think he did it brilliantly. They brought back Andrew Astor as uh, Foster Lambert, the younger brother in this. Uh, they, they do have the Callie character, but uh, they do not have the baby that played her in the first two films. Uh, I young actress named Julia Davies plays her uh, gets all of like two lines uh yeah did, did a fine job with what she had I mean you really uh more it's, it's more of a nostalgia trip for the the parents and the two boys but to have all of those principal actors come back now as uh, adults or, or teenagers and, and playing these characters was a great nostalgia trip uh they all did a great job and I think that is probably one of the primary things that makes this movie work is having all those those primary actors coming back for this. And then, of course, you get a Tucker and Specs cameo. You get the uh, Lynn Shea bits in archival footage. The nostalgia works for this and the continuation of this family's story because this family is what you really cared about in those first two films. And, and the continuation of that was something worth watching. Was the supernatural elements worth watching? Uh, uh, that's where we'll get into some spoilers. So uh, from here on out, I am going to say that we are going to have some spoilers. Go check out the movie. It's worth a watch. It's not a bad movie. It's just not a great movie. And it could have been a better movie. But I still... I'm glad I watched it, at least like I said, to see where this family has gone since we saw them, you know, how many years earlier, 10 years earlier. But go check it out. It's a good movie. It's fine. Just not a great movie. And it could have been a lot better. And we're going to talk about that once we get into the spoilery section. So from here on out, if you haven't watched the movie, go watch it. Come back, listen to my thoughts on it. And we are going to be getting into some uh, the spoiler realm, if you will. It's kind of like the further, but instead of ghosts, it's all full of spoilers. So one of the things I thought was kind of interesting, and, and it made sense, uh, you know, you want to see families living happily ever after at the end of movies, and at the end of Insidious 2, you think, oh, you know, they got Dalton back, Josh is back, and they're going to all live happily ever after, but you have... Renee, she has that look on her face because a possessed Josh was just attacking her family and she seems very hesitant. And and all of that took its toll between not being able to get over the fact that her possessed husband attacked her, but also they wiped through hypnosis Josh and Dalton's memory. And Josh, we find him in this and Dalton to another degree as well, are, are both kind of just have this fog where they just things, they just can't remember things. There's a section of their life they don't remember. And they just kind of feel like they're in a haze and a fog, if you will. And it's like something's wrong. And and between that and the experience that Renee had with Josh when he was possessed, it caused a rift between them and they are divorced. 
as we we meet them and renee has the kids josh is off living on his own the the first we meet them they are having the funeral for the lorraine character played by uh the incomparable barbara hershey i loved her in those first two films uh lorraine has passed away and and they're at the funeral and that's kind of where we meet them that's where they're at in this movie and renee has the idea for for Josh and and Dalton to take a road trip together. Josh taking Dalton to college. And because there's a, you know, there's a big rift between those two. But once Josh and Dalton get Dalton to school and getting them set up in his room, they kind of have this heart to heart, maybe not even a heart to heart because it doesn't end well, but they come to blows about how, you know, Josh was never there for him, how Dalton's been so distant and that they both kind of have this, this part of their life that they can't remember and they feel like they're in a fog and uh, both trying to figure out what is going on with them. And that really is the launching off point for this movie. And that is where the whole rehash of the first two films begins because you have Patrick Wilson's character, Josh Lambert, going off, getting help, uh, you know, psychological help, and you uh, essentially get a lot of rehashing, a lot of flashbacks. You also have him uh, having a run-in with the ghost. You see it in the trailer, and they did, you know, have that uh, sneak peek scene that came out early where he's doing the memory thing with the cards on the window, and you see the guy in the back, uh, you know, kind of out of focus. They did a lot with that, a lot of uh, images out of focus and did some scares that way. But uh, they they do this whole thing. Who is this ghost? And it gets Patrick on a quest that culminates with him finding out that it is the ghost of his father. Because that's one of the things that in the big head-to-head Josh and Dalton have. Josh talks about how he never grew up with a father. He never had a father figure. Which I felt was just kind of a... A wasted story because it was never brought up in the first two films. You know, no one really knew where Josh's father was and all this. For all we knew, he'd passed away a while. I, you know, I guess I just never really knew nor cared where Josh's dad was in all of this in that first film. He just... He had a hit a mom and she was there and there wasn't a father figure when you know they did the flashbacks to him as a kid having the experiences with astral projection and the bride in black his dad just wasn't there wasn't in the picture and nothing was really made about the fact that his dad wasn't there or him wanting to know who his dad was so it just really there was just no carryover for that i didn't feel like i needed to know who josh's dad was i mean i feel a little bit of concern and care for him as a character in this when he all of a sudden feels the need to find out who his dad is and and the big investigation into this ghost and and everything that leads him to finding out who his father was and that his father was just like him was experiencing astral projections like he does and like his son Dalton does Uh, that kind of made sense that was interesting Uh, I think there was a way to delve into this that was a little better they created a mystery that i didn't care about and then when the mystery paid off oh that's that's kind of cool they could have done it completely different if they would have made this the focus of the story and instead of making it just kind of a, a little side story where you could have 
played into the mystery a little more. I think that would have been more engaging to me as somebody sitting in the audience. That Field of Dreams moment where he encounters his ghost dad in the further at the very end uh, would have had more weight. I would have cared more about it if I cared more about the relationship between him and his his long-deceased father that he never knew. I, I just, I, I think it was... An interesting idea, and I think that's probably part of the problem with this whole movie. A lot of interesting ideas that just weren't very well written together. And and I blame that all on the screenplay writer, Scott Teams. You're going to hear me bitching a lot about him for, for the next however many minutes uh, this episode goes on. But I thought the Patrick Wilson character of Josh Lambert... I thought it was interesting. I I loved Patrick Wilson's performance in it. I think he really plays that everyman very well. And he plays the, the anguish of having been separated from his family and trying to figure out what's going on inside of his head and wanting to protect his family and figure things out. He, he just does a really good job with those sorts of emotions. And that's why I've liked this character and his portrayal of this character through the first two movies and, and this one as well. Now, Ty Simpkins, who plays Dalton Lambert, is uh, kind of our other primary character in this in this movie. And he has done uh, a fantastic job. You've probably seen him over the years. I mean, he's done Insidious 1 and 2, but he was also in uh, Iron Man 3. He made a Avengers Endgame cameo. He's been in Jurassic World. He's in The, uh, the Whale. So uh, a really good young actor that... I think had the weight of the world, the weight of this movie on his shoulders, because you probably spend more time with the Dalton character than anybody. He's off to college and, you know, he's going in as an art major and he's encouraged to unleash his inner self and, and dig deep into who he is. And he starts drawing these pictures of this red door, which is the launching off point for him, you know, realizing that there's something he can't, you know, pieces of his life that he can't connect together and that there's something going on that he just can't put his finger on very uh, vague remnants of memories that, you know, he just can't get the connective tissue to, to figure out what it's all about. And I really thought his art professor uh, played by Hannah Bass. I really thought she was going to be a bigger character in this movie. I thought maybe she would have some sort of knowledge of things. You know, she does really feel like, you know, when she's talking about going deep with inside yourself and, and finding the real you, she has some sort of knowledge of things. Uh, maybe... Maybe the average person doesn't know about those deeper places, those deeper recesses within the mind and in the spirit world. I don't know. She just really felt like she had some sort of knowledge of things that, that, like I said, not the average person would know. And I thought maybe she might turn into some sort of de facto Elise Rainier character because that character is dead. So you can only really do her in very specific ways, whether it's archival footage, whether it's her showing up in the further, which she does not do in this movie. Uh, she does have a, a, another little cameo later, which we'll, we'll discuss once we get towards the uh, talking about the end of all of this. But they really, they I think, underutilized this character. I think this was a character that could have been really interesting. She's a wonderful actress. And I just don't think they grasped the opportunity that they had 
to to use this character in a way that made her more important than just getting Dalton to tap into those inner recesses of his mind and and unlock the knowledge of the red door so to speak but with this character dalton you get a lot of him investigating what's going on with him he he learns that he can astral project and he's starting to see ghosts and trying to solve the mysteries of these ghosts that he's coming across and uh, it, it just felt like it was all a lot of wasted time that didn't have anything to do with what we really wanted was the return of the red-faced demon. Was knowledge about the red door and its significance. Now, we'll say that the Dalton character and, and Ty Simpkins got some of the scarier moments in this movie. I think that moment when he is in the, the frat boy's room and he comes across that ghost that's puking in the, the bathroom and, and he ends up hiding under the bed and the tension and the atmosphere that's built with the, the fact that this ghost might be out there. And of course he comes out from under the bed and you get that jump scare of the ghost being on the bed above him. But then you get kind of like the college humor uh, ghost puking all over him, which I, I felt was... Uh, it, it was a little hokey. It, the jump scare was good, but <laughs> but you set up all that tension just to have almost like a joke scare. I, I don't know how I feel about that, but up until that point, the tension was was really good, and the way Patrick Wilson filmed that, and Patrick Wilson, I thought, you know, I don't want to get too much into how I thought about him as a director, but there were a lot of scenes where he did what is really important with horror is lingering. Lingering longer on a shot than you feel you need to. Once you feel like you've got to that point where you should probably cut something else, linger just a little bit longer. That just that always drives tension, that always builds atmosphere if you're you're doing it right with with lighting and the cinematography and the sound design. It, it can all make for a wonderfully creepy scene and you don't even really have to have any monsters jumping out. You can create good horror that way and I, I thought Patrick Wilson's done enough horror movies and supernatural stuff that he really had a, a good in instinct for those sorts of things uh, there were some really interesting shots uh, in regards to that but going back to Ty Simpkins I thought that was a really scary moment where he's under the bed I thought there was a really interesting moment with him when he goes into the further he he's astral projecting himself but he is projecting himself to that moment when Josh is possessed by the bride in black and he's attacking Renee and Dalton is hiding, trying to, to go into the further to, to help his dad and, you know, seeing all of that play out. And, and that was a really kind of interesting thing because that's one of the aspects of the further that I've always really found fascinating is the fact that the further like time doesn't exist in a way that we understand it like you can go into the further and you can see things from the past you can see things from the future it's it really all very interesting and again another aspect of the further that I think would be interesting to delve into a little more. I don't think they needed to. They had a lot going on in this movie as it was. But that's one of the things I find interesting about The Further is that fact that time doesn't really exist there. You can go into The Further in the present, but experience things from the past and interact with things from the past. That's one of the 
aspects of Insidious 2 that I found really cool is the revelation of things that happened in the first movie were really Josh going into the further and interacting with things and making things happen. It was all just very, very trippy, very mind bendy, uh, but but very well done. And I think that you have to chalk up to the, the wonderful writing of Lee Wanell that you did not get in this movie with Scott Teams. But this was an interesting scene that did kind of play into that, uh, not in the, you know, Dalton's actions as an adult are affecting things in the past, but to him being able to see uh, what happened in the past and how things went down was a cool moment for his character. And then that scene where he's captured again by the red-faced demon and Josh comes to save him uh, was was a really creepy scene. Any scenes they had with the red-faced demon were, were creepy and very horror-centric and and what you know make this a, a horror movie? I just don't like how they treated the red face demon, and it's more of an afterthought, just like the very first movie. We'll get into that here in a second, but I want to finish talking about this character, Dalton. I, I really enjoyed Ty Simpkins' uh, portrayal of Dalton, seeing him as a kid back in when was it 2010, 2011, when he first was in the original Insidious movie, and to see him playing the same character again, uh, it just added some some legitimacy to it. And it, it added that nostalgia factor, seeing this kid all grown up now still playing this character was was fun to watch. And, and I thought he did a real good job from an acting standpoint of making you care about this character, making you care about the relationship or, or lack thereof that he has with his father, caring about not just not knowing what's going on in his own head uh, about his past, about, you know, what he can do, what is it, what's, you know, what are these things that he's drawing and and not being able to understand it. You care about all that. And, and you're invested in this character. And that is a lot to do with his portrayal of the Dalton character. Another standout in this that I, I really enjoyed her performance while I didn't care for the character as much. Uh, there's a character that Dalton meets in college, Chris Winslow, played by Sinclair Daniel. And Sinclair Daniel does a really good job with this character. I just felt like this character was too much comedy. They really used her, Scott Teams wrote her as comic relief in the way that the Specs and Tucker character were were done kind of as comic relief in the first couple movies and then and then later on in the the other installments. But ah it, it's comedy that just has never really worked for me. <laughs> it, it it feels out of place. Now while in the first two insidious movies the comedy was low-key and not over the top this character the chris character she just felt a little too one-linery and i didn't care for it it felt like comedy shoehorned into this just because oh well it's a horror movie and there's tension so we gotta have comic relief to release the tension so let's throw this character in there now that being said like i said i i think sinclair daniel did a really good job with this character and the portions of her character that were tied into the dramatic bits of this movie. I thought she did a wonderful job and I, I liked those moments with this character. It was just the, the comic moments that were a little silly and like I said, just didn't quite feel like it fit with the tone of the movie. But then again, I, I did mention this uh, a little earlier about a couple of the cameos. They had the Specs and Tucker character make a cameo of course Lee Winnell 
plays Specs. Angus Sampson plays Tucker. Uh, they find, actually, Dalton and Chris find a video of them online where they're talking about astral projection. And that's how they come to realize that what uh, Dalton is experiencing is astral projection. It was, it was a fun little cameo for those two characters from, the, from all the other movies. And then, of course, uh, the Elise Rainier character is shown in archival footage. They come across a VHS tape of her where she's talking about, you know, being in the further and stuff like that. That was really interesting. I think I would have liked it better if they had her show up in the further because the only real time you get any Elise cameos is on that video cassette footage. And then at the very end, as as things are wrapping up and Josh is leaving Renee in the kids' place and, you know, there's talk of him coming for the weekend and having dinner with them. He's getting in his car and there is Elise talking to him and he's still kind of fuzzy, still doesn't remember a lot of things from the past and he doesn't remember her and they, they have a... Uh, a cordial little conversation. She says she's a friend of his mother's. It was a nice little cameo. It was, you know, like I said, it, it made you feel all warm and fuzzy inside seeing uh, Lynn Shea show up as Elise again. I just wish it had more bearing on the story. They could have had her shown up instead of the father. They could have ditched the whole Josh's father storyline because it wasn't done strong enough to matter. They could have made a whole other movie based on that story. You could go into to more depth and, and make the story matter. I would have rather had her show up and, and help Josh at the very end and instead of his father, where you have that kind of corny, thanks, dad, moment between them. And it didn't really carry any weight because you didn't really know their relationship or, or care that much about it. I think it would have been better served to have Elise show up in that moment like she has before in the past. Yeah, I know you're not treading new ground. I know you're not doing anything new. They've had that uh, done before. But at least in doing this, I I'd rather them rehash an old trope of the, of the films than to try and do something different that really isn't that interesting and that I really don't care about. There's no emotional weight to Josh and his father having that moment there in the further, there's more weight when you have Josh and Elise, I think. At least that's my opinion. But I guess since I've talked about so many elements of this end, uh, I should talk about the the very end because you have Dalton, his, his astral projection is taken captive by the red-faced demon again. Josh comes to save him. Uh, they have this slow speed chase scene through creepy halls and, and then you come to uh, them leaving the red door. They exit through the red door and Josh has to hold back the, the red-faced demon for Dalton to get away. And essentially they kind of, uh, they do a fake kill of Josh. They make it seem like he's dying, like he's going to sacrifice himself so his son can live. But Dalton comes back from the further, starts covering his painting of the red door with uh, black paint, kind of doing his Rolling Stones, paint it black. I see a red door and I want to paint it black. <laughs> and of course, covering up this door with black paint makes the door erase in the further. Josh has his moment with his dad. Ah, oh, thanks, dad. And and dad disappears. And then Josh comes back to life. And, you know, I, I felt cheated in that moment. I didn't want 
the Josh character to die, but they made it seem like he was going to die, and then they took it back. And I was like, ah, it just kind of felt like the stakes were just taken out of it. Again, not that I wanted this character to die in the first place, but but faking that he was going to die in, and then and bringing him back just because, that felt like bad writing on Scott Team's part. Trying to trick you into some emotional engagement and then pulling the rug out from under you. Nope, nope, he didn't die. He wasn't going to die. He was going to be alive all the time. That's where I wish they could have used that. They could have used Lin Shay's Elise character for that. Make it seem like Josh is going to die because, you know, he's he's sacrificing himself, uh, leaving Dalton, but she comes and saves the day and holds the door for him until until Dalton gets the, the you know, the red door covered up with black paint on his painting. Use that emotional capital that you've already built up with a, a beloved character like that but yeah all in all it, it was an okay movie I, I didn't mind it i loved the aspects you have with the family and and seeing where the family's at and seeing uh, the wreckage of this family because of the events of the first two movies and then all of a sudden the events of these first two movies are kind of thrust back into their lives that that was interesting to me i think the points of this where it just failed me is the fact that it is called insidious the red door and i've watched the first two movies over again i haven't rewatched three and four i didn't feel it was necessary i don't know if maybe they go into it a little more in that i I don't think they do i don't remember it but the red door its significance I, i really wanted them to delve into the lore of that you don't need to explain everything but i suppose if this franchise is going to continue on. You still have opportunity. But if this is indeed the last one, which I've heard people talking about, this may be the last Insidious movie. I don't know. But, uh, I mean, the last Insidious movie with the Lambert family, I should say. We'll talk about the future of the franchise coming up. But if it is going to be the last one, you know, give us a little more insight into the significance of this red door. What created it? I mean, it's certainly Dalton has ties to it with... You know, him being able to to paint over his drawing of the red door. Did he create the red door? For what purpose did he create the red door, if that's the case? They could have delved into these sorts of things. The red-faced demon. Why is this red-faced demon so interested in Dalton? What is the story behind the red-faced demon? Again, you don't have to go into great detail, but give us a little something. Give us a little motivation for this this villain as to why he is after our protagonist. Well, you never got that in the first one, other than he is a demon who wants to inhabit Dalton's body. Okay, that that's fine, but to what end? And, and where did this demon come from? How did he become obsessed with Dalton? I would like to see those sorts of things. I'd like to understand those sorts of things. And they had an opportunity to do that. But the red-faced demon got about as much screen time as Renee did. And that was... Renee probably got more screen time than than the red-faced demon did. And she didn't get any screen time at all, hardly. Uh, Maybe like three scenes. But they spent so much time rehashing the happenings of the first two movies that they left themselves no time to delve into anything more. The, that third act felt so rushed. And and I have to imagine that was in, in editing. That had to be done in editing because, like I said, there were a lot of scenes where like Patrick Wilson is one place and then next thing I know, he's in the further. Well, 
why why did he end up there? How did he end up there? I mean, I get it. There's there's context clues and subtext about he must have done this and but why you know why did he end up showing up there just when he had to be? There was a lot of connective tissue that was just missing and and probably ended up on the cutting room floor because they had wasted so much time at the beginning of this movie uh, explaining things, re-explaining everything that happened in the first two movies. I don't know whether that is a writing thing, if that is a uh, the producers and the studio kind of mixing in and sticking their nose where it doesn't belong, but they left no time for an ending that was satisfying. And there again, I don't know if there was a satisfying ending to this, just by the way Scott Teams wrote this, because there's no hint that I've seen on the screen that would suggest that they delved into anything that I wanted this movie to be about. Like I said, a little more explanation on the lore. You've got the return of the red-faced demon. You've got the the whole thing called Insidious the Red Door, but we learn nothing more about the Red Door other than the vague notion that Dalton may have ties to it. Like I said, given the fact that he made the Red Door disappear, sort of, uh, by painting his painting of it black. Now we know the red door didn't disappear because if you stay all through the credits, I I wanted to see a couple things in the credits and I thought, okay, I've made it this far. Let's see if there's a PS scene. And there is a brief image of the door and that light over the top of the door and the light flickers on and off and you see an outline of this black door. Uh, so you don't know if things are done just yet, but uh, it, it was an interesting little the end question mark kind of PS scene. But at the end of the day, this movie didn't have any of the things that I thought we were going to have when you, like I said, had the return of the red face demon, when you have the movie called Insidious, the Red Door. It didn't delve into the things that those, those would suggest. It delved into the family and where the family's at, and that was fun. That was great fun seeing this family, seeing where they're at, seeing the tragedy of where they're at at this stage in their lives, seeing the character of Josh and Dalton kind of immersed back into these powers that they have, astral projection, going back into the further. That was all fun and good and well. Uh, but it just didn't it didn't go places that I think they could have gone because, like I said, they did waste a lot of time rehashing everything at the beginning of the movie, whether it was because it wasn't written in or they didn't have time to do it. I don't know, but it just left me wanting uh, more out of this movie. They had a lot of opportunity to go into some really interesting places with this movie and these characters and and they didn't. And that that feels like I. I kind of was robbed of something that that I thought I was going to get. Uh, maybe it was more I really wanted it, so I thought I was going to get it. But the way they set things up, you you had certain expectations as to what this movie was going to be about. This subverted those expectations, not in a good way. And it had some scary moments to it, but it wasn't certainly as scary as the first movie. And I think that has a lot to do with the way it was written. Because I think these scary moments that Patrick Wilson directed. I think he directed well enough. I just think that there weren't as many good moments for scares. And I'm not a huge fan of jump scares, but I've always appreciated the fact that with Insidious and the first two that James Wan did, that the jump scares were always, they weren't fake jump scares. They weren't like a cat jumping out or a door slamming that it was just, oh, the little kid slamming the door. Uh, you know, they all 
took place within the action and within the horror of the moment. And, and I've always appreciated that. And and you've had that throughout this film series, is that the, the jump scares are a part of the horror. I don't like that they do the big, loud music sting or the big, loud sound effect to to startle you along with the jump. But I've always appreciated the jump scares. But they just there was a lot of moments for jump scares in this movie. And there are moments where you have the dead trying to get to Dalton, uh, trying to get to uh, Josh as they're in this astral projection state uh, that just weren't done as, as well as the original movies. It felt more like zombies just clawing at people. It wasn't like interesting ghost characters that, that felt like they had a backstory. It was kind of uh, the the great ghost unwashed masses just kind of clawing at these characters, which it built tension. It built atmosphere, but it wasn't terribly interesting. Now, while it didn't have a lot of scares and a lot of good jump scares or anything like that, there was a few good jump scares, but, but not a ton of scares in this movie. They did build atmosphere and tension quite well. I thought Patrick Wilson had some really good instincts as to to building dread and building fear through through tension and atmosphere on the the few scenes that he got to do things like that which makes me really excited to see what he does as a director in the future especially if you know if he decides to direct another horror film sometime down the road I thought Patrick Wilson's direction was was really good the the movie was visually very interesting to look at the cinematography was interesting there was a lot of interesting uh camera angles and and movements that i thought uh you know nothing new there's nothing new under the sun so you know nothing that really uh broke the mold but but still some interesting things that that i enjoyed really put you in a great space for not knowing what the hell's going on you know what what sort of world you know we're going through the looking glass and all bets are off sort of shots that I found quite interesting. The score as always was quite good. The sound design was really good, except for, like I said, uh, they, they do a lot with the jump scares where you, you hear a loud noise or a loud bang. And I just, I'm not a big fan of that. I want to be scared, not startled. I want to be scared, not jolted because of a loud, you know, bang in my ear. But Joseph Bashara, the composer, uh, came back for this one. Of course, he was a part of the first two movies. Uh, he also plays the, the red faced demon as well. So it was cool to have him back, you know, doing the music, doing the red faced demon. And another thing I really enjoyed, it was during the end credits uh they have this song stay that plays through the end credits and it's very soft at first and then it kind of gets into a rocking part but uh, i'm like oh my god is that patrick wilson singing is there was something about his voice that made me think that that was pat and then of course i stayed through the credits to see the the music that they used and yeah of course it is the song stay uh, it's the band ghost featuring patrick wilson yeah, Patrick Wilson singing the first couple verses, and then the lead singer of Ghost kind of steps in, and, and things get a little heavier. A really good song. It was it was so good that I listened to it a couple times on my way home, and I, I was listening to it before I recorded this episode, and my wife is like, that's a cover song. And I'm like, it is? 
And she's like, yeah, it was uh, some band in the 90s, some group in the 90s, and it was a female singer. She's like, I can, I can hear it. And we looked it up, and it's actually, yeah, it's a Shakespeare Sister cover. Shakespeare Sister was a duo back in the 90s. It comprised of, I'm probably going to butcher her name, Sioban Faye. She was in Bananarama. And Marcella Detroit. And they had this song stay off their 1992 album, uh, Hormonally Yours. But yeah, this Ghost and Patrick Wilson song is a, a cover of that song. And, and a really good and faithful cover. I, I really enjoyed it once I listened to the original. And then listening back to Ghost and Patrick Wilson's version. I, I love what they did with it. And the song really, uh, the reason I, I wasn't sure, I didn't think it was a cover song at all. Because the song really lends itself to this movie. And the theme of this movie about you know in the song and if you watch the Shakespeare sister video it's more about death but if you kind of tie it into going into the dream world and coming back and it really was the perfect song for this like I said you could have told me that they wrote this song specifically for this movie and I would have believed it I probably would have eventually come across Shakespeare's sister and their version of it and the jig would have been up but uh, initially, I would have been bamboozled because I thought this song was so perfect. I thought it had to have been written for this movie. But ultimately, I, I did enjoy this. It, it wasn't a bad movie. Just like 3 and 4 weren't horrible movies. They weren't great movies. They weren't as good as the first two movies. And I have to put Insidious Red Door kind of in that realm. I think the only thing that Red Door has going for it that 3 and 4 don't is that it does tie directly back into the Lambert family which is, is something I really enjoyed. I think this movie was hindered by the fact that Lee Wanell didn't write it. I think you really needed somebody that cared about these characters, that cared about this family, that cared about the story. I think you needed them involved in this, in, in writing the screenplay. And I, Scott Teams just does not have a good track record with me. And he's not good at taking somebody else's work and adapting it. Just like he butchered the Firestarter movie. He butchered Halloween Kills. He didn't butcher this, but he left a lot of good stuff on the table that could have made for a more interesting, more engaging movie. He left us with a movie with a lot of missed opportunities. I think Patrick Wilson did a great job with what he had with the script uh, gave us. And, and I can't say that I put any blame on him. Uh, maybe because I like him as an actor, I'm kind of letting him off the hook. And maybe because I don't like Scott Teams as a, a screenwriter, uh, maybe I am being a little hard on him. But uh, Patrick Wilson did a good, good job with what he had to work with. But I just don't think Scott Teams really had a coherent story. I think he had a, a story with a bunch of interesting ideas that never really formed to, to make one coherent story. And that's why it kind of meandered for the first two acts and then felt rushed through the third act. But I like the direction. The acting was, was spot on. I just think the story suffered from the writing. Now, is this going to be the last story we get with the Lambert family? Uh, I mean, the red-faced demon's not dead. And we do know that the door still exists. It's not red, it's black now. Uh, is there an opportunity to go back and do the movies that they should have done where they kind of give us a little more insight into the red-faced demon, make him more of a prominent villain, and give us a little more idea what's behind, not literally, but proverbially, behind this red door. We still have an opportunity to see that. Uh, I thought it would be this. It should have been this movie, but... 
is this going to be the last Lambert movie? I don't know. I've heard a lot of people talking about it like it is the last movie we're going to see with the Lamberts. This is the wrap-up of their story. I don't think the story was wrapped up. I think there is another story there. It remains to be seen whether we'll get that story or not. Because I know the next thing that they're going to do is, again, I think going away from the Lambert family. It's called Thread, an insidious tale. So it seems like they're doing with this like they did with the with the Conjuring movies and making this kind of Conjuring universe with the Conjuring films, with the Annabelle films, with the Nun films. We're going to be getting the Nun 2 sometime this year. So I think they're doing that with this. I know there was talk about doing like a cinematic universe or, or something like that, uh, a crossover between Insidious and Sinister, which would be interesting. I don't I don't know how they do that, but it would be interesting. I don't know if this Thread movie and Insidious Tale will do that, will be kind of the bridge that links those two films together. It remains to be seen. But like I said, ultimately, I didn't get the movie I wanted. There's still an opportunity for that movie. I just don't know if we'll ever get it. But never say never. Not in this industry. Not when there is a successful film franchise to milk the teat of for the studios. Uh, I know this movie cost like right around $16 million. It's made about 64 just over $64 million so far at the box office uh, this past weekend. So, you know, it's a success. Uh, is, is it going to be as big a success as the other films? Because the other films... Uh, did really well for the money they spent. I mean, Insidious 1 cost $5 million and made $162 million, give or take. But if it's making money, they're going to keep pumping out films. So uh, maybe maybe I'll get the movie I originally wanted uh, when this movie came out. Uh, I would like to see Patrick Wilson get another crack at directing a better script. And I'd like to see all of these actors come back and play these characters because that was probably the best part of this movie was seeing all these original actors come back, playing their original roles. I would like to see the Foster character become a little more involved uh, in this. I loved seeing uh, the actor who plays Dalton Ty Simpkins. I'd love to see him with another movie where he is uh, is front and center with Patrick Wilson. I, I love that father-son dynamic that we got a little bit of and those scenes were great with these, these father and son together. I'd, I'd like to see something a little more. You know, we start off this movie putting them together on this road trip and and Patrick Wilson's character taking Ty Simpkins to college but then they separate right away. And don't rejoin to the end of the movie. I'd like to see a, a little more of that father-son dynamic in a future installment. And I'm excited to see what this new Thread movie, An Insidious Tale, is going to be about. It's going to be directed, written by, the story by Jeremy Slater. He wrote 2015's Fantastic Four, 2017's Death Note. He's writing the upcoming Mortal Kombat 2 movie. He's involved with the Exorcist TV series from a few years back. So, you know, he's done a couple episodes of The Moon Knight, Umbrella Academy. So, you know, the guy's got a great resume. I hope that from a writing standpoint, he does better than Scott Teams does. And it'll be interesting to see where this... This movie, this insidious tale goes and, and how it connects to the rest of the franchise. But ultimately, like I said, I enjoyed Insidious, The Red Door, the fifth installment in this film franchise. And it, it wasn't great, but it was pretty good. And the things that made it good were the directing and the acting and seeing these characters that we grew to love in the first two movies coming back. 
those were the things that made this a really good movie. Everything else was okay. Hopefully you liked it at least as much as I did. Hopefully you liked it more than I did. And if you liked it more than I did, to each his own. If you hated the movie, I I can't blame you. I, I think... It's a little better than the hot garbage that some people are making it out to be. But ultimately, like I said, it's an okay movie. I'm glad I watched it. I would probably watch this over again before I would watch three or four. But it's not going to be like one or two where I go back and watch them every few years. So I want to thank everybody for listening to my thoughts on Insidious, The Red Door, the fifth installment in the Insidious film franchise you want to find out more what's going on with odds bodkin's curiosity shop what we're going to be talking about what movies and tv series are coming out just go to facebook check us out there we're always posting trailers and articles from all over the internet that i find on horror fantasy and science fiction i like to add my two cents as well you can check us out on instagram and no matter where you listen to this podcast subscribe to it follow it like it whatever you got to do and and please share it with anyone that you know that loves horror fantasy and science fiction and as always leave those reviews until next time thank you for visiting odds bodkin's curiosity shop We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. (laughs) Ha 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 ha!